Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stack. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Forrestine. Remember me? I've been out for three episodes. It felt like three years, but uh, happy to be back. And I'm Damien Garde. I've sadly been here the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> it's Thursday, October 12th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Merger Monday has returned to biotech thanks to Bristol Myers Squibb's multi-billion dollar acquisition of Marathi Therapeutics. We'll talk about what the deal means for an industry in an ongoing slump. We'll also discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including Wall Street's ozempic panic, crispering animals, and the next step in the Nash saga. All that after a word from our sponsor. From breakthroughs in drug developments to inside scoops on billion-dollar deals, Join us October 18th and 19th for the annual Stats Summit. This year's speaker lineup is one you won't want to miss and includes Michael J. Fox, Priscilla Chan and Mark Zuckerberg, Nubara Fayan, Emma Walmsley, and Daniel Skrvonsky. They'll discuss their groundbreaking work in the lab and the boardroom and its impact on the future of health and medicine. Virtual and in-person tickets in Boston are selling fast, so don't miss this incredible lineup. Secure your Stat Summit ticket today at statnews.com slash events. So Adam, you're back. And what a week to be back because we've got a lot to talk about. Hi, everyone. I hope you all miss me. It's good to be back in the in the saddle. Uh, yeah, we should start the conversation, uh, this podcast with the, you know, we always like to start with an M&A deal if there is one to talk about. And uh, this week, we had Bristol Myers Squibb buying Marathi Therapeutics, a maker of cancer drugs, targeted cancer drugs for $4.8 billion, plus, uh, I guess, a $1 billion sweetener. Um, Damien, what were your thoughts when you saw that? I guess the, the news came out Sunday, uh, as, uh, as we were all weekending. Well, I saw it Monday morning, you know, as someone who t- tries to observe his weekend when it's possible, especially a long weekend. Um, that's probably enough yeah, autobiographical does, details. Why does the biotech industry do this to us, if I can interject? Like, there's always big news on a holiday weekend. That's just rude. <laughs> and it's one of those holidays that, I don't know, it's kind of one of those weird holidays where some people don't observe, I guess. I don't know. Well, that's true. Anyway, Damien, what did you make of the deal? Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I thought it was interesting because this this followed uh, another saga, not unlike the Nash saga we're going to talk about later. Marathi's most highest profile drug is a cancer drug targeting KRAS, the formerly perceived to be undruggable cancer target, um, formerly the subject of great enthusiasm about the potential of medicines against it, more recently the subject of tempered expectations, if not some... I don't know. I wouldn't want to say indignation, but you know, we, we talked about last week the, or I think we did, um, Amgen, which makes a KRS medicine of its own, really going through it with the FDA with respect to mm-hmm. whether that medicine um, is as powerful as it once seemed. And while Marathi's drug is obviously different, it is it has been subject to the ebbs and flows of the KRAS story, and its stock price kind of tells that story naturally. So Bristol Myers coming in at this exact moment and buying it for that exact price felt interesting, both because it would suggest that, and and Marathi has more in its pipeline than just the KRAS treatment, it would suggest that there is some value there in the eyes of Bristol, but also, you know, Adam, as you wrote, the actual 
takeout price was what we call a take under, which is to say that the per share acquisition price was below where Marathi had been trading. But obviously, the company said yes to this deal. And, and there's more to it. There's you know money tied to the back end of it to where shareholders will get paid if certain conditions are met. But it still felt like a little sobering, perhaps, despite the headline number and the fact that any big drug company buying a smaller drug company is ostensibly a good sign for the market as a whole. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Damien. I, I think, you know, you can look at, again, you can look at the $5 billion exit valuation from Roddy and compare that to about three years ago when the company was worth $12 billion. Uh, I think what that tells you is obviously it tells you that, you know, the market was inflate, you know, overinflated probably back then, as we all know. Uh, and, and biotech has been in a, in a sort of rather prolonged slump. Um, but I think it also reflects the fact that, you know, while there was a lot of enthusiasm for KRAS, this sort of was, you know, known as an undruggable cancer target, which then became uh, druggable through some pretty cool science. But, you know, translating that science into a profitable business and generating sales has been difficult. You know, Amgen has a KRAS targeted drug, as does Marathi. And, and both companies have not done a great job of sort of translating that science into sales. And there's been, um, it's the struggle has been sort of broadening the, the the sort of the efficacy of that drug. Right now, it's sort of used, it's used on its own. And there have been various efforts to show that combination therapies, for instance, let's say a combination of a KRAS inhibitor with like a, a checkpoint inhibitor, you know, the jury is still out as to whether that is going to sort of increase the pool of patients who benefit from this drug. So I think all that sort of ref is reflected in this kind of depressed uh, stock price, you know, depressed acquisition price that, that Bristol is, is buying Marathi. Yeah, I mean, looking at Amgen, its closest competitor, there you know are kind of a couple of like not distressing but but um, depressing you know aspects of their KRS drug, which I have to imagine there's there's a fair amount of, of you know follow on for for Marathi there or a fair amount of influence. I mean, one that the so you know Amgen was in front of the FDA last week. Um, to try and get full approval for their drug, which right now has accelerated approval. And the data that they presented was like, yes, there is an effect on, um, you know, progression-free survival, but patients taking this KRS drug didn't, there wasn't an effect on overall survival, which for a, a cancer target that was as exciting as it was, you would hope that there wasn't it was an impact on overall survival. And then even before this this FDA meeting, um, you know, Amgen has not been having the sales with its um, uh, KRAS drug uh, Lumacras that it had been hoping for. It really was hoping for you know a, a blockbuster drug, and and sales have been um, not where they they wanted. So, I mean, Adam, you had wrote that it seems like at this point the conversation has kind of evolved past the KRAS drugs, at least in terms of Marathi and the excitement to some of the other products in its pipeline, right? Yeah. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the deal includes, uh, you know, basically what, what, what's called the CVR, about a billion dollars or I think $12 per share. And that is, you know, that would be paid out uh, to Marathi share, shareholders based on the successful development of a different drug that Marathi has. It's a, it's a drug that targets something called PRMT5. Uh, there's been some excitement about it. Marathi has some very early data a couple of months ago showing some interesting activity in solid tumors. Uh, Amgen actually has one, uh, a PRMT5 
a PRMT5 inhibitor as well. Uh, I think they're actually showing some data uh, tomorrow, that's Friday, at a at a cancer meeting. So you know, I think that that might be an interesting target, and, and that ultimately may be a maybe a more lucrative drug. You know, coming out of this deal. I mean, I think it'll it'll take a while to determine that. Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, so this is. You know, we we love a, an M and A Monday. We haven't gotten a lot of them this year. Uh, Pitchbook and uh, the National Venture Capital Association just put out their their new quarterly data uh, this morning on Thursday, and they had said that so far um, for biotech and pharma, this is just the the fifty sixth. We've had 56 exits so far this year. I actually don't think that uh, the Marathi exit is included in that. So maybe 57. I mean, last year, 2022, which was not a good year, 89 exits, 2021, 195 exits. Um, the industry just, you know, continues to be in this slump. And, and some of that pitch book data was rather, was rather sobering, I have to say, as someone who, you know, looks at venture capital numbers a lot. It was, it was not what I think we have all been hoping for, for late 2023. It was interesting kind of stitching it all together because zooming out, you know, we understand all of these things are interrelated. So the number of major buyout deals that happen from a company like Bristol-Myers Squibb acquiring a company like Marathi Therapeutics tends to have kind of like a trickle-down effect. And so the number of those deals are down. We had data, I think, just this morning from Learink um, suggesting that there have been 15 such acquisitions um, this year, which is tracking well below previous years, 30 to 40% below what had been seen um, from 2019 through 2021. And so then, as you mentioned, the you know exits for, for venture capital, which is say like IPOs or acquisitions mm-hmm. of private companies, those tend to track with whether companies that go public can get acquired. So as one number goes down, the other number goes down. And as, as you covered with the pitch book data, the number of actual venture capital deals, likewise, was trending at a six-year low. And so we're just kind of watching this all play out in slow motion, the like long biotech correction just has all of these, I guess, like trailing indicators of what we've kind of seen and understood to be happening. And the search that many people have for silver linings remains mostly theoretical. Like it's not in the numbers, but you constantly hear from people that 2024 looks like it will be better based on, you know, whatever leading indicators they may point to, but at least all of the data we have suggests that the slump continues. Yeah. You know, and like even beyond just financing the it feels like the 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 news out of biotech companies is still rather dampened. You know, Damien, you also talked, you also wrote this week about um, El Nylum, a, a company that you know has just been on such a, a confident stride these last few years, um, getting a rejection from the FDA. What what happened there? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a curious issue, and I think we spoke about it on the podcast before. Al Nylum has this treatment that was in development for a once perceived to be rare, now understood to be fairly prevalent heart disease, um, and presented data from a clinical trial where that their medicine met its primary endpoint, and it went through the FDA advisory committee process where that data, those data were picked apart <laughs> pretty um, aggressively, and there was you know a multitude of opinions on just how much. Alnylam's medicine actually benefited patients, but that panel did vote nine to three that the benefits outweighed the risks and thus it ought to be approved. The FDA, we learned this week, did not see it that way and declined to approve the drug, saying, um, according to Alnylam, basically that the evidence they had was insufficient. 
This is not a massive blow to the company per se, because their future in treating this disease is largely tied to basically an updated version of this same medicine that can be dosed subcutaneously rather than intravenously, and thus would be um, a lot more convenient and therefore more competitive on the market. But it, it is interesting in that it, it forces on a company that has been very successful in recent years. And um, as former CEO John Marigonori likes to point out, has never failed in a phase three clinical trial, which I think is rare for a biotech company that's been around that long. But they're suddenly now facing this really binary event, which is whether that subcutaneous treatment can actually make a difference on measures of hospitalization and death for patients with this heart disease. Those data are expected in early 2024. And whether they're positive, the degree to which they're positive will have a massive effect on Alnylam's future as a business, which is, I mean, that's a tough position to be in. Obviously, the company is very confident. The science makes sense. It seems like the drug ought to work, but we've seen, I mean, time and again in biotech, but specifically in this disease, things that seem like they're not going to work end up not working. So it's less of a period than an ellipsis for Alnylam, but it's definitely one that changes the narrative slightly. Yeah. It also feels like a little bit of an ellipsis uh, for this company that just like feels like the little engine it could every time I want to count out Bridge Bio, um, they, they just seem to kind of come back with some financing, with some, you know, promising clinical trial data. They're also working on a, a treatment for the same condition, right? Damien, I mean, do we know how, you know, those two, those clinical trials that they're each um, running compare to one another? Like how the, the treatments compare and how the, you know, the data that they're collecting might compare? Yeah, so BridgeBio had data in July from a phase three study in this same disease, which was powered, unlike Alnylam's prior one, to detect differences in hospitalization and death for patients with, and the disease is called ATTRCM, we should say, which is ATTR with cardiomyopathy. That trial was a success, and we saw the full details um, of the data at a later medical meeting. And so essentially, that means BridgeBio has the kind of data it seems like the FDA would want to approve its medicine, which would allow it to compete with the only approved medicine for this disease, which is a Pfizer drug that was uh, approved in 2019, and whose data are hard to compare to these other drugs because they conducted their studies when the standard of diagnosis and treatment for this disease was different, such that, Mm. um, you know, this is not to disparage Pfizer's data, Uh, it was very, very strong. But everybody says now, if you ran that study today, it would look quite different because medicine advances. Anyway, so the current state of play is the assumption is bridged by a will win approval. Um, It plans to submit those data, I believe, by the end of this year. And so presumably that approval would come next year. Alnylam would follow after that. So what it really depends on is, like I said, how positive, if Alnylam's data are positive, how positive they are compared to the Pfizer data that already exists, patients in that study will likely um, have, will have access to the Pfizer drug, which kind of complicates matters. And then furthermore, how they stack up to the bridge study, which was similar endpoints. It will always be apples to apples comparing clinical trials that are not identically designed, and these are not. Um, but they're in the same ballpark of looking at mortality, looking at ultimate patient outcomes when they get one of these medicines. And I, I honestly have no idea how the market will shake out. I don't think anyone really does. The bridge biotreatment is oral. The onylem is an object is uninjectable. This is a serious and fatal disease if it is not treated, which suggests that perhaps you know the convenience factor will maybe not be as strong as it might be for something, you know, more symptomatic and and not as grave. Hmm. But I mean, I've heard I've heard countless opinions on this matter, and I think it really boils down to we'll just have to see what the data say. All right, Adam, you wrote about 
some other woes in the biotech world uh, early this week. What's going on with Akira? So I feel like a week does not go by where we don't see the impact in in some form or another uh, of the GLP-1 class of obesity drugs. And, and this week, uh, that that impact came in the form of a clinical trial that was run by a company called Decaro Therapeutics. They are developing a drug for NASH, which is a fatty liver disease, obesity-related fatty liver disease. And and they did a study in in a patients uh, patients who had really advanced NASH. So these are patients that have uh, have advanced to the point where basically they have cirrhosis of the liver, which you know is is at the point where scarring and fibrosis accumulates in the liver to the point where you you, know, you start getting a significant liver damage and ultimately leading to probably the requirement that patients have a liver transplant. And, you know, what's interesting about cirrhosis, uh, cirrhosis, NASH, or NAT, you know, uh, cirrhosis related to NASH is that this was, this is a patient population that was thought to be kind of, uh, insulated from the whole GLP-1, uh, you know, NASH as a as a disease has really been impacted because of the fact that it is uh, obesity related. And the, the prevailing thought here is that uh, patients who have earlier stages of NASH, you know, if they just lose some weight, um, it, it helps, uh, it helps regress the disease. Uh, and so a lot of patients, a lot of doctors are now thinking that, you know, that, that GLP-1s will be a, a kind of a preferred treatment option for patients with NASH. And that sort of leaves the companies like Akiro who are developing drugs, uh, specifically for NASH kind of leaves them a little bit on the outside. Um, so this study was really kind of, people had some high hopes for the study because again, this patient population, very advanced with cirrhosis was thought, well, well, you know, this is this is a patient population which really is not going to be helped by the GLP ones. Unfortunately, the study did not work. Uh, the results were rather disappointing. I mean, while it did show um, it did show some effect on uh, liver scarring, uh, you know, it, it did not uh, it did not achieve uh, the, the the primary goal. of The study did not reach statistical significance, and as a result. Uh, Akiro stock price fell. It was it was it was a bloodbath for Akiro. Uh, uh, stock came to, uh, stock fell down uh, about sixty percent. That was about a billion dollars in market value that was uh, erased from the company. And I personally, I was sort of surprised. I got to say, uh, by the uh, the magnitude of that loss. I you know I, I when I when I got the results and the company had given them to me and other reporters under embargo. You know, I thought to myself, well, it'll probably be down you know, maybe 30% because, you know, there is still this idea that, that glip ones for all their benefits on weight loss, you know, they don't really do anything to, uh, to improve liver scarring or liver fibrosis so that there's still a market for these NASH drugs in some form. Like 17 million Americans apparently have uh, some form of NASH, some stage of NASH. And I thought, you know, that, you know, glip ones are not going to just decimate that market. Um, I feel like maybe I'm a little bit wrong there because, um, you know, the fact is, is that, you know, I think what 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 this reaction in the in Akira stock price does show that I think people are really they're very worried that glip ones are just going to sort of dominate uh, the NASH treatment market, that there isn't really a place for sort of for NASH only drugs in, in patients in earlier stages of disease. And so far as we, you know, anyone with more advanced uh, more advanced NASH that, that's kind of trending into cirrhosis, uh, you know, we still don't really have an effective drug. And I mean, the verdict is not uh, not out yet on the Akira drug because, you know, they're going to treat patients for longer. 
Um, the company told me that they feel like maybe they didn't treat patients long enough. They treated them for 36 weeks. Uh, if they treat them for longer, I think they're going to go out to another or another year's worth of treatment. You may see more of a benefit. But again, uh, that that remains to be seen. It's interesting to see such a significant market impact from GLP ones, where it feels like we should note that we don't really have any solid data yet showing that GLP ones reduce fatty liver disease. That's just kind of the assumption that's out there in the ether. Right. The GLP ones have been studied in Nash, and, and you know we, what what's interesting is you haven't really seen. Uh, an impact on the fibrosis, and that and that's kind of the you know that's the sort of hallmark of Nash that that the real which where the real damage occurs in the liver, and we haven't seen that. But I think there is this idea that um, if you get people in the if you catch people in the earliest stages of Nash, you know where you know it's more about the fat accumulating in the liver and, and the inflammation in the liver that that GLP ones can have an impact there. I mean, it is just just stepping back. It's just remarkable how many. Uh, part, how many areas in healthcare or even just the general economy that GLP-1, obesity drugs, I mean, you've heard, we've heard, you know, I, I don't think it's been confirmed, but, you know, there's a speculation that, oh, you know, soda makers are going to be impacted by that. And I think even this week we saw, you know, Novo Nordisk, Novo Nordisk who makes, you know, one of the these GLP-1s, uh, you know, they stopped a study early in, in patients with uh, diabetes and chronic kidney disease. Uh, they stopped it early because it had overwhelming e- efficacy. And so now this drug, now this drug, these drugs appear to have, you know, positive impact for people with, with chronic kidney disease. And, and you saw Davida, which is a, a company that provides dialysis services to, uh, to patients or diet, to patients with kidney disease. You saw their stock fall because there's this idea that maybe patients aren't going to need as much dialysis. So it's just incredible, like sort of how broad the impact of these drugs have been. What a time. And also the the magnitude and speed of the market reactions, I think, is is what's been so striking to me. Like it is legitimately a panic. The the decline in Davida and also Fresenius, another company that also does dialysis, was like twenty percent. So billions of dollars cut off of the market values of these companies that have cornered the market on this like massive part of our healthcare system, which is dialysis. Kidney disease is a huge problem in this country, based on not data, not an FDA approval of Ozempic, but a press release saying simply that we stopped a trial early for efficacy. We have no idea. I mean, we can assume the efficacy is pretty strong or you wouldn't have stopped it early. But my point is, this is markets are moving. Multiple billions of dollars of value are being swung based upon basically like whispers around GLP-1 treatments and this assumption that they will become I, I don't know, like fluoride in the water at some point and just massively transform the, you know, you hinted at uh, earlier, Adam, but like Walmart, Coca-Cola, McDonald's are all facing questions on their investor calls about like, what kind of impact do you expect this to have? Yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible. And, yeah. And it, it's just, I mean, I guess we've seen this, this happens on Wall Street. It is kind of uh, a a space famously prone to groupthink, let's say, would be like a polite way of framing it. Um, and I do think we might look back upon some of this uh, and laugh because I, I just don't think that, I just sincerely doubt that airline stocks, McDonald's, et cetera, will be forever changed <laughs> by the introduction of a pharmaceutical product. Not to to downplay how obviously, you know, the demand for for these medicines already exists and, and, and the power that they have. But it's, you know, it's worth noting that their manufacturers cannot meet current demand, let alone, I yeah. don't even know how you game it out, what the uh, adoption rate of these medicines would have to be to have the economic effects that are implied 
by these stock market moves. But you know, yeah, these, I mean, you know, I, I think historically we've seen you know, these swings in sentiment that you see, you know, they, they tend to just overreach, right, in one direction or the other. And I think we're seeing that with these clip ones. But, you know, look, it's having it, it it's they're having this huge impact in the market. I mean, you, you hear we talk a lot about biotech stocks and how they're in this prolonged slump. And part of the reason is that when you look at, you know, generalist investors who, you know, control and, you know, marshal most of the money in the in in, in the stock market, um, you know, to, to those people who are not sort of heavily uh, invested uh, in biotech or who don't have the sort of the deep knowledge in healthcare and biotech, you know, a lot of those people are just looking, a lot of those funds are just saying, hey, all I need to do is invest in Eli Lilly, right? All I need to do is invest in the Glip One uh, thesis because that's what's important. That's what's driving the market these days. And why should I? Why should I? You know, try to sort of understand and get in the weeds of some of the, these more specialized biotech companies. And that's one of the reasons why biotech stocks are are down. You know, are down this year and you know underperforming the market. You know, obviously, you know, interest rates and all sort of the macroeconomic factors are are are, are sort of negatively impacting biotech stocks as well. But Honestly, it's like, you know, a lot of generalist investors out there are like, all I need to do is invest in Eli Lilly and Glip once. That's it. So who knows what the market might be like by time either of these things is is ready for prime time. Um, but I do want to just give a mention to one of my favorite things on the stat website this week. Um, shout out to our, our uh, multimedia team. Um, the, the crispering of different animals like chickens and pigs. I mean, pigs specifically, we are getting- It was a big week for barnyard data. animals, wasn't it? It was a big it's week a for- big week for yeah. barnyard animals. We don't yeah. talk about it enough on this podcast. Um, I don't know who has the barnyard animal beat at stat. That is that is to be determined. Um, but we got some of our first uh, xenotransplantation data in the forms of um, pig organs um, showing pretty decent- Efficacy. It feels remarkable because xenotransplantation has been this idea that feels like it's been floating out there in in the minds of, you know, uh, some folks in biotech. I mean, notably George Church um, has, you know, been really interested in this field and, and the company at the center of this eGenesis was, uh, you know, co-founded by George. Um, but we are actually starting to see some data that this might work. Yeah, I mean, the news this week from eGenesis, which is part of a, a larger um, and pretty like massive and long-term effort to make xenotransplantation real, uh, is that they basically CRISPR'd a pig to um, have up to 69 genetic changes. This is the most, the most CRISPR'd creature in, in known history um, to produce kidneys that were then implanted into monkeys, and they, they functioned well. For an average of 176 days, and for the eldest of the animals, or the longest-term procedure, for more than two years, um, our colleague Megan Multeni wrote up the news for Stat this week. This was published in Nature, and it's you know it's it's an advance. I mean the the kidney program is not necessarily ready for human trials, at least in the United States. Eugenesis plans to conduct another long-term monkey study um, that could take a few years before asking the FDA for permission. But it is advancing in Japan. Um, where the need for transplant organs um, is more acute. And also, you know, it's, it's worth noting this follows um, a lot of work that's happened to where there already has been uh, a pig heart uh, implanted into a guy uh, at the University of Maryland. Was that last year, two years ago? Anyway, he is still 
alive. I don't think he's been discharged from the hospital, but this is a an effort that is is bearing fruit after Allison, like you mentioned, many, many, many years of theoretical promise that ran into serious scientific issues. And, and one of the big things is, you know, obviously the fear of the recipient, the human immune system rejecting the organ, which is true for all transplantation, but especially when it comes from an animal, but also <laughs> what it's viruses. so foreign. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but also viruses that are, um, are unique to animals, let's say, that would be very dangerous for people. And so that's where a lot of the crispering comes in, these you know dozens of individual edits that scientists are making, basically to tamp down the potential for those kinds of infections, these viruses that are that are endogenous to these animals. And so, you know, the, the monkey data obviously is, is a sort of a so far so good moment, albeit one that is a reminder of just how much work there is yet to do in this field. And, and that's true also of the other, um, as you mentioned, big um, crispering <laughs> animals news this week, which relates to chickens. And in this case, it is not uh, because we want to harvest organs from chickens, um, but rather because we want to tamp down the spread of bird flu, which has been alarming, well, for a long time, but has, has uh, peaked once more um, in recent months. And so the notion here for scientists um, in the UK was to use CRISPR to edit chickens such that they could perhaps have immunity to bird flu, and then you could breed them, and they would be this race of super chickens who, uh, you know, would be <laughs> immune to this virus. And similarly, the early results were very promising. They, uh, the scientists, made these edits and then exposed the chickens to the flu and got pretty good data um, with respect to protection. But the the issue here is that it really is more of a proof of concept than it is a ready for prime time thing because everyone involved is conscious of. If you breed chickens who have a certain amount of immunity to the virus, but still kind of harbor it, what you could be doing is creating an incubator for basically a super bird flu um, that their immune systems would conjure, and then that would be spread throughout chickens, and then you would do something terrible, (laughs) frankly, and create like a super virus, which is obviously what nobody wants to do. And so that work is still ongoing, and they're looking at, you know, further edits that might be possible um, to eliminate that possibility and to actually make this practicable. And then you have the further down the line things of how one would implement a broad chicken editing platform across the world, where there are multitudes of cultures and governments that actually you know, handle the production of, uh, of poultry. But still, I mean, both, both cases are just kind of like fascinating applications of, of CRISPR that uh, made sense on paper for many, many years, but are now bearing fruit in actual science. I'm really hoping one day I can revisit um, this conversation that was happening in Cambridge, you know, in you know, right outside of Kendall Square, pre-pandemic, where there was somebody in town who wanted to crisper rats so that they would not be able to, I think, as as easily reproduce. I forget the exact details, but it was the the idea was to you know kind of reduce um, you know the the rodent population in the city um, uh, using CRISPR. And um, I don't know what happened with idea- that idea. We, we you know, had this little thing called the COVID pandemic that I think um, took higher precedence. Um, but maybe we'll be back on this podcast one time to, you know, soon to talk about CRISPRing rats. We'll Allison, really I was getting really to... hungry having this conversation, <laughs> but you just killed my appetite. So thanks for that. Sorry. Appreciate it. It's okay. <laughs> And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. 
Next week's episode will be recorded live in front of, I guess, a studio audience at the Stat Summit that you have heard about already. So if you are going to be in Boston or you already have tickets for that, we look forward to seeing your hopefully smiling faces there. And if not, uh, and you simply tune in and are curious as to why it seems echoey and there are people, again, hopefully clapping, that's why. Anyway, as for this episode, we want to thank Teresa Gaffney for producing it. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you, like Nash Drug Stocks, are being impacted by the Glip Ones. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. Sadly, is not. Why don't I? Why don't I, I, I? That's not the energy I want listeners to begin with. <laughs> okay. <laughs>